Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, March 15th, 2018, the Ides of March. Why do some people win and others lose in a court of law? Well, the real answer, as we'll discuss tonight, is that banks are lying and courts are choosing to believe them, despite all evidence to the contrary. The other answer, especially in foreclosure cases, is how little or how much the attorney for either side knows about the laws and rules of evidence. In a recent decision against Chase Bank, it was forced to admit that it fabricated documents shortly before uh, the hearing for the sole purpose of going to trial. It also admitted, and I think this is of paramount importance, that there were no transactions behind the fake documents thereby corroborating a basic tenet of what has been produced on my blog and this show for the last 10 years, that it isn't only that the documents are fake, it's that there were no transactions to document. I'm here with co-hosts for this show, Attorney Charles Marshall of California and Forensic Investigator Bill Padalo. First, uh, a little housekeeping message uh, about our websites. Lending Lies is under reconstruction again, so it won't be up for uh, a while, probably a week or more. Living Lies is still up and running the way it always has been, although we will be making some live changes to it after Lending Lies is reconstructed. Please bear with us. So tonight we're going to be talking about the court decision in which Chase admitted that they fabricated documents for the sole purpose of foreclosure, and we might be bringing in some other cases as well. As an aside, uh, might creep into the conversation, I'm working, as you all know, I'm always working on different uh, avenues and approaches uh, to this foreclosure mess. Uh, for my part, I'm getting closer and closer to the right, or that is to say the correct approach to contesting non-judicial foreclosures on due process grounds. The non-judicial statute is fine in, in, uh, in most states as it stands. 
except that it does not do something that a few other states have done as a matter of law. In those states, if the homeowner contests the non-judicial sale, then the case becomes judicial. That means that the party that did the notice of sale or notice of intent to sell uh, has to file a foreclosure complaint and make allegations in the complaint that are sufficient to withstand a uh, demurra or motion to dismiss. And they must be able to prove the truth of the matters asserted in the complaint. Those states like Maryland have recognized the obvious, that if it is contested uh, in a foreclosure situation, that without realigning the parties, the homeowner who contests a foreclosure must, must somehow make and prove allegations that in substance amounts to a denial of what the foreclosing party would say, but didn't say, at least not yet. This is ridiculous. In, in, the, non, in, in the hybrid states like Maryland, the, um, uh, the homeowner need only file that he's contesting the uh, foreclosure, and that forces the other side to file the complaint. In the states, and this is most of them that have non-judicial statutes, um, in those states, the homeowner is forced to file a complaint and essentially make substantive allegations that are basically no more than a denial of what they think the foreclosing party would say if it was a judicial foreclosure. This is ridiculous. It switches the burden of proof on the basic um, uh, facts in, in issue onto the homeowner instead of requiring, uh, as due process requires, that the party seeking relief must make allegations of fact upon which relief can be granted. And so if it's, uh, and so it is, if the case were judicial. So I have long said that the courts should routinely grant a motion to realign the parties to achieve the same result as the states that effectively enacted that switching of burden um, onto the banks. Unfortunately, not too many people understand the motion to realign the parties, and that includes judges. So it's been routinely overruled or uh, denied. Um, Without it, the homeowner must assume the burden of proving a defense to allegations that have not been made or filed or even asserted by the so-called beneficiary. So that's just something I'm working on, and if any of you want to write in uh, uh, about it, you can uh, post, uh, post it as a comment on the blog, or you can send an email to neilfgarfield at hotmail.com. 
With that aside, we move on to the Chase case, which showed, Chase finally admitted it, a blatant disregard for the law, fabrication of documents, forgery of documents, and a brazen attempt to enforce non-existent transactions. This is counterintuitive. Everybody would think that the tra there must be some transactions there. There aren't. Not in that chain. So welcome, Bill Padalo and Charles Marshall. Thanks, Neil. Yes, Neil. Good day to you as Bill, well. First, since you brought uh, the, this Chase case to my attention first, uh, doesn't this simply reflect a pattern of conduct not only for Chase but by all foreclosing parties? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the way Chase um, litigated this case as I researched it, and let's uh, clarify for the listeners, <clears throat> This is another one for the dossier, the Chase dossier uh, of, of admissions that um, I've been stumbling upon recently, and this was a federal case out of Tennessee, Middle Tennessee. Um, it was a pro se litigant, um, unfortunately, but I don't think in looking at everything that that necessarily was the reason why this case ended up, uh, why Chase prevailed eventually. Um, I think this, uh, the facts and the admissions that were made here are so egregious that it's, it's an insult to anybody's intelligence who looks at these admissions and the documents that were produced and how any court could still sign off and grant them any sort of relief is beyond my comprehension because this one is just that bad. But where we're getting to in the last month with the Prudian case down in Florida that we talked about where Chase admits that they don't have any of the accounting to show uh, the money trail from the borrower to any investors. Here now, uh, when pressed in discovery on, on a motion to compel and a motion for sanctions because of a continued nine-month uh, method of delay and, uh, and obstructing uh, the, the discovery process, filibustering all of the above, uh, when, when called in on the carpet to produce witnesses whose names appear on the assignments and the endorsements on the note they provided, uh, to which Chase would, was refusing to produce any witnesses uh, for deposition. The court, once you know, they ordered that, Chase, their tune completely changes, which is typical. Uh, the facts, the story, they just go back to the drawing board and come back with a whole new set of uh, facts, documents, paperwork, whatever is uh, self-serving and whatever they need at the time. But what's, what's really interesting in this case is, again, they admit in their filed interrogatory responses into the court and the hearing that not only were the Alanges produced just prior to, uh, by Chase employees just prior to the hearings in this matter, um, but they admit and state that there's no uh, depositions aren't necessary because there are no employees or agents or anybody at Chase, past or, pre past or present, who has any personal knowledge to any of the facts or the underlying transactions or any of it in this case. So again, they're admitting, as you said earlier in the show, that. The emperor has no clothes. They don't have anybody 
uh, who has any knowledge of these transactions, and yet they are uh, stamping their names on these allonges and creating a story or a fictional chain, which they which they know they don't have anything to support that. Now, this case, as you dig into it, I mean, it gets really ugly. Where they stated initially when they filed a premature early summary judgment motion, they state the basis for all of their positions in that summary judgment, and they state that they gain their authorities through a limited power of attorney. Uh, and, and as soon as plaintiff in this matter starts to press for that power of attorney, of course they backtrack and state they don't have any such document in their records, can't find it, can't locate it. Uh, so every single time the plaintiff would hone in on some document, some employee, something that they've put forth in their story to simply call them on it and to seek a deposition on it or whatever it might be, uh, suddenly they backtracked, and, and as they did in this case, and admitted that the emperor has no clothes and there's nothing to support it. Now, one thing that's uh, uh, very interesting, and I know Charles is going to touch on this, in terms of the sanctions that were laid upon Chase for these kinds of for this kind of behavior, um, is that the initial note in this case had a direct endorsement on it from Chase Manhattan Mortgage to Citibank NAS trustee. Now there's no identification of any trust uh, as to who Citibank was acting as trustee for, or any of that information was unavailable. Um, and so when pressed to explain that fact, uh, they simply got a, an affidavit from a, an officer at Citibank simply saying that it had no interest or whatsoever, that the loan had never been transferred ever to Citibank uh, at any point in time, and they had no knowledge of anything, and they basically washed their hands of it, Okay. However, at the end of the day, the allonges to which they admit they altered and doctored were executed as attorney-in-fact for Citibank. And, and then the power of attorney document to which they stated they had and couldn't, then couldn't find and so on and so forth, then they come in and, and, and doctor up a, a limited power of attorney that is, essentially has no information whatsoever pointing to the loan, any trust, any rights to anything. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a comedy of, of, of lies and deception. But my question to you guys is we'll evaluate when we get to this point now where we have entities like Chase admitting on both ends, they have no money trail, they have no employees with information, personal knowledge of any of the transactions that they're altering and doctoring up endorsements and allonges and assignments uh, in, in, in spite of the fact that they admit they know nothing about any of it. Now that they're admitting this, I mean, I, where do you go from here? I mean, how do you, how, why would you even litigate or why should it, there be a need to litigate when you have another side that simply it, it, it makes these types of damning admissions? You know, let me clarify. Let me clarify something here. When we're talking about transactions for the audience, we're talking about the origination, the so-called origination of the loan, 
and each so-called sale of the loan, which shows up as an endorsement on the note, an assignment of mortgage, or both. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to say is that they're treading a fine line here, but I don't think they can they would survive it if in a real world where uh, the courts did as they're uh, as they should be do, doing in the uh, following the the laws and rules of evidence that here the admission that there's nobody past or present that would have any information about these transactions, and a transaction is something in which money changes hands, that that is an absence of evidence, which in this case, since it's 100%, means that it's evidence of absence. But they haven't quite admitted that there were no transactions. They're saying the equivalent which is that there was that that there is an absence of anyone who could provide foundation for um, uh, any document uh, or even testify to the, the fact that there was a transaction in which the loan had been funded and the successors had paid money up the line, uh, each one to the other, uh, in order to gain ownership of the, quote, loan, end quote. And, in fact, what they were doing was simply fabricating paper and sending it around and through a common source which I believe I've identified as LPS but I'm not certain in the case of Chase if, if it's LPS through a common source a particular party is named which might be a trust it might be a company whatever usually some bank as trustee for a trust that doesn't exist. So they name an entity and they need the common source to delegate or appoint one of the conspiring parties to do the foreclosure that they want, but they're not entitled to. And the reason for the common source is that they want to make sure that two parties or ten don't file for foreclosure on the same property with the same so-called original note, which is never original. So, all right, having clarified that, uh, Charles, you can answer Bill's question, but my question is, where are the criminal prosecutions? Where's the referral by the judge to law enforcement? You have obvious perjury involved here or misrepresentations to the court or the part of counsel. 
I, 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 I'm, I'm just, I agree with you on that deal. Yeah. And I, I think that, I mean, it's been obvious from the beginning. I mean, the most common layman was saying, you know, lock them up, which then got transferred to, uh, uh, another situation that we all know. So, but they never were. In the whole history of this, which really goes over 20 years now, not one person other than Lorraine Brown at Doc X, which was part of LPS, Lorraine Brown took one for the team and went to jail for fabrication of documents and forgery. Not one other criminal... She was strictly a functionary. That's the striking thing about that. She wasn't directing policy on what she was doing. She was simply following the edicts that were put to her as part of her routine employment. So the idea that only she should be accountable for that when she's not even responsible for the policies that led to the fraud. That in and of itself is very objectionable. And the other thing that strikes me in terms of the the criminal procedure aspect to this is at least hypothetically, one could set up a cleaner avenue to getting to the criminal referrals and the criminal procedure by pursuing motions such as such as motions to strike in this situation because whether the relevant lack of evidence which theoretically is 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 only relevant in an evidentiary contest which just as a reminder listeners it's not an evidentiary contest uh per se or in theory when you're at the demure or motion to dismiss stage, because then the only legal relevance at that stage is, could you hypothetically have a case? In other words, assuming your facts are true, and that's how motion to dismiss is always framed, no matter what jurisdiction you're in, your facts alleged as the plaintiff assumed to be true, could those facts under the theories you've put forward in your lawsuit create legal liability on the part of the defendants. If they could, then your case is supposed to go forward. Yet, even in that, you know, somewhat sterile, ethereal environment, if you put forward declarations on the defense side, which these institutional defendants do this all the time, and their declarations are from somebody who's you know, supposed to be an employee or an official or an executive of MERS as an intermediary to, to, to a lot of these activities, or they're involved with one of the principals. And the absolute failure to put forward any substantive evidence to show ties to the subject loan, as is and was the case here with, with this Chase case, the Day case, where that kind of paucity, where that kind of insufficiency of evidence is right there at the, at the background and the backdrop of the motions to dismiss, 
then I think it's very appropriate for the plaintiff's side to file a motion to strike and simply strike the declaration. And if the declarations are not even essentially legally enforceable to be applied to the case, in a huge number of these types of cases, there's no other evidence out there because there's no ever no other evidence to begin with to tie, as this case here, Chase to the subject loan. So that's right. Motions to declarations, I think, could be one effective route in this type of situation. And then if you get a that's judge to point. uphold that, then the criminal referral, I think, is an easier easier play, let's put it that way. It's still going to be a difficult play, but at least you've set the table for it to some extent. I think also, to to me anyway, the admission by Chase that they have nobody who can testify indicates to me that at least at that point in time, Chase was having trouble getting people for any amount of money to commit perjury. Because usually what they do is they pay somebody, they give them a script, and they say, go do this. And if they pay them enough money uh, or give them some job security or something like that, um, he goes and says it, whether you know he knows the truth of it or not. And that has universally been accepted in most cases, not all, um, as proper foundation testimony, even though they obviously could not possibly have the knowledge necessary to testify. And we know they don't have the knowledge because what they're testifying about doesn't exist. Well, you know, one thing uh, I want to chime in on is that is it's insulting it's as insulting as it gets when here we have Chase saying that there's no employees or anyone with personal knowledge who can test anything and then when they ultimately prevailed on their final summary judgment motion what do they do they submit an affidavit of a Chase employee who starts out by stating I base this affidavit on personal knowledge okay now what does the judge have short-term memory here I mean they've already told this judge that the basis that why they don't have to comply with discovery and depositions and everything is because there's no one with personal knowledge. And then they're so bold as to then slip another affidavit such as this in front of that judge's face. I'll tell you, uh, it, it, it's just, it defies, it's, it's so aggravating when you read this stuff um, because all the only thing I can think is, is just this, this utter corruption uh, because again, yeah, where's the referral? Why is uh, why is no one being hauled off in handcuffs for showing up the court to that extent? I mean, that is, uh, you know, that if I, if I were sitting on that uh, bench, I mean, just looking at it in the real world, I mean, geez, how dare you insult my intelligence like that? But I wanted to make one point, and I'll let you comment on this one too, Neil. Is that you always say what's good for the goose is good for the gander, and. You know, when you have a situation here as Chase coming in saying, you know, that all these documents, we don't have any personal knowledge of any of it, and we created these documents out of thin air uh, with no requisite knowledge of the transactions, I, 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 I can't help but feel that any of those documents that they're putting forth to foreclose, being a note, deed of trust, mortgage, whatever it is, 
that the homeowners need to start out by denying everything from the very beginning because they've already admitted that the documents that they were putting forth are fabricated. Well, now you're saying what I said and why I got into this in 2007. Deny everything because the other side has nothing. And I I recognize that fact uh, because uh, by, it was by accident. I was helping people uh, by sending qualified uh, uh, written requests under RESPA. And um, I did hundreds of them, maybe over a thousand. And what happened was startling. All of them involved some claim uh, of being a successor. None of them involved the so-called original lender. And if the homeowner was current in his payments, I got nothing back, zero. I didn't even get an acknowledgement, which is required under the law, that I had ever sent anything. But if the homeowner was in foreclosure, then I got back a bunch of documents. And so I was led to ask, and I did make inquiry to anonymous sources, I was led to ask, why is it that they have the documents for cases in foreclosure, but they don't for cases that are not in foreclosure? Mind you, out of hundreds, perhaps a thousand, not one of the homeowners that I had sent the request out for was able to get any response back or any documents. Not one got an assignment of mortgage. Not one got an, a copy of an endorsed note. None of them. But if they were in foreclosure, if there had been a notice of default, notice of sale in a non-judicial state, uh, foreclosure complaint in a judicial state, then suddenly we had assignments of mortgage, copies of endorsed notes, and all that. And I concluded, correctly obviously, that these documents were being fabricated and forged. It was later that somebody had the good sense to name that process as robo-signing. But it, what's clear is that from the very beginning, there was nothing to, there was no substance behind the foreclosure, whether it was non-judicial or judicial, and therefore, to drill in Bill's point, you should not admit a single thing because everything that they are presenting is some part of a fabrication of evidence. And that's why I say, you know, I've been saying the last few weeks, 
that one of the differences between winning and losing is how little or how much the, the attorney for either side knows about the laws and rules of evidence. This is a ground war. And if you don't understand what the absences mean, then you're going to fail to object for lack of foundation. You may even fail to object for best evidence or hearsay or other things. And you won't hit the right points on cross-examination either. Nor will you have requested the correct uh, items in discovery. If you do understand that these absences or gaps are meaningful, then you're on your way to winning the case. And virtually every case that I have reviewed that was successful involved the gaps. And it wasn't that the homeowner proved that they were crooks. It was that the homeowner's attorney attacked the evidence supporting the purported status, standing again, of the party who was bringing the foreclosure. And in, in, in many cases like this one that we're talking about, the judge will actually go out of his way to explain all the fatal deficiencies in the documents so that if the matter is brought up on appeal, then those fatal deficiencies are going to be mentioned in whatever the appellate decision is, for or against, which will then broadcast it to everyone in that jurisdiction and most likely across the country. So the... The, the the concept here and, and people like Dan Edstrom and, and Bill Padalo uh, have demonstrated time and time again is that they've got nothing if you stand your ground. They, they can't possibly come to court with proof that an actual transaction occurred, and maybe their documents weren't exactly right, but this is what happened. There is no this is what happened because nothing happened in that chain. And that's what's so hard for homeowners as well as attorneys who are practicing foreclosure defense to grasp. It's counterintuitive. It's not something that you could think could possibly be true. But it is true. And here, Chase admitted it. Charles? Uh, one thing that strikes me about the, the way to advance the evidence on our side is the use of subpoenas more often. Because subpoenas are kind of an in intermediary level of discovery but, you know, in terms of cost, in terms of inconvenience to especially the party arranging the deposition, uh, resource allocation. Of course, our side is always much more burdened with those costs than the other side. Nevertheless, we are going to see, and it's going to be routine in these cases, the institutional players, be they defendants or plaintiffs, 
be the case judicial or non-judicial foreclosure based, they're going to use declarations or affidavits routinely at every phase of the litigation. And they're going to be making all kinds of representations about what the connection of that declarant is uh, to very general generic matters. And a lot of times that, that won't even be fully developed or enunciated. In fact, I would say it's almost never properly connected and it isn't connectable in a, in a situation like the Day versus Chase here. Uh, but even where there's more of a, an assignment chain that can actually be fleshed out semi-legitimately from the defendant's point of view, or from the institutional uh, player's point of view, I should say, even in those cases where they have some tangential connection to the subject loan that still represents a break of, of chain of title because it's not developed enough and it's not provable, and it's not even fully definable, in those cases, they still churn out all these declarations of employees and pseudo-employees and people who manage to be, you know, officers of MERS and two other institutional players all at the same time, all kinds of non-sequiturs like that that could never happen in either the legal world or the real world. So you've got all these what amount to fake, you know, either fraudulent or semi-fraudulent declarations and if, if you try to get a deposition out against even one or two of these declarants, that could be a big thing in itself. But again, from our side, even doing one deposition and trying to schedule it and trying to go for the thousands of dollars in costs that that's going to involve, an alternative is to do a, a, a subpoena. Because in the vast majority of cases, these declarations put forward by the institutional players, they're not going to be individual defendants in the case. They're going to be somebody who may have been named in our fact iteration of the case. Uh, however, they're not going to be actual litigants in the case. So a subpoena could legitimately be issued to them uh, to the effect, okay, you've made these declarations, you you've made all these claims, we're going to subpoena documents, we're going to subpoena other information, and you're going to present that to us, and you're going to justify what you put in your declaration. Now, because a subpoena has such strong legal enforcement behind it, and because a subpoena, sure, it's under oath as a declaration, but again, you're much closer with the subpoena to getting somebody to actually be in a room where they're subject to a deposition like cross-examination of some kind. So I agree with I you completely, subpoena. and I have been a great proponent of subpoenas, but I haven't mentioned it much for the simple reason that most homeowners don't want to pay for it. They don't. Oh, I know. It's At not, least it's cheaper than a deposition. That's, that's my thinking on it. Well, I agree, but if the attorney is not being compensated to prepare a good subpoena listing documents and um, uh, uh, perhaps even setting the person for deposition, which you know they're never going to show up at, eventually, you know, they'll, they'll try to wear the, uh, the lawyer down who issued the subpoena. But the biggest problem is yeah. that, you know, clients 
are avoiding paying for the very things that would prove the gaps. And one of the things that I've been thinking about and I haven't spoken about until this very moment is maybe some of these people in the inside these organizations if they do testify and we know that they're not telling the truth maybe they can be named as defendants in a case for damages as a co-conspirator just something i'm thinking about because we have wrongful foreclosure actions and you usually have the testimony of some guy who or woman who you know has a script that says yes i uh, i'm vice president of twiddling my thumbs and i have i have familiarity with all the business processes of this company which uh uh i say is the servicer uh who administrates this loan but in truth they don't know anything and that's where you know on cross-examination and stuff like that you can uh, uh undermine their testimony it's called impeaching the testimony of the witness. So uh, I definitely agree that a subpoena is far better than just issuing the regular discovery request, which should also be done. Um, But that requires the attorney to be ready to fight for it, same as the discovery request. And if the attorney... You have to take that into account. Yeah, but what I'm this is a message to homeowners. If you really want to win, then put your shoulder to it. If you just want to go through the motions, you shouldn't have started to begin with. So that may be a little hard to hear for somebody, but it's true. If you if you want a lawyer to go into court and win for you, then he's got to have the ammunition to do it. It's not a matter of him being him or her being smooth talking, although that's important for credibility and persuasion. It's a matter of having something, some actual fact or absence of fact that is relevant to the case that can be thrown in front of the judge's face. Bill, you have a quick word. We're we're off in a minute. Uh, yeah, I just want to make sure uh, we give the name of this case for anybody that wants to go and look it up. Um, it's in the uh, Middle District of Tennessee. It's Day D A E E versus J P Morgan Chase. And uh, so, anybody got Pacer and he wants to go and do a little research on that, I'm sure we'll post an article on the site tomorrow. Uh, but, uh, yes, I love the subpoena aspect. I think that the prior servicers need to be in the crosshairs of any of those uh, subpoenas, uh, basically because the current ones are attesting to all the prior knowledge, uh, which is garbage, as we know, and it's hearsay. So uh, excellent uh, point of attack. All right. Well, as usual, Bill Padalo, Charles Marshall, thank you for joining me here. As always, interesting conversation, 
and I will be back with you folks next week. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you, Neil. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.